Good evening, listener. I want you to imagine the the story that comes to your mind on on Christmas. The image of of the the Virgin Mary arriving into Bethlehem with Joseph, her protector, where they go from from door to door looking for someplace to stay, but oh no, there's no one, no one, no room for them anywhere. Only in in the cattle stall are they able to find some refuge. It might be a cave somewhere or some attachment to a home, but there they settle in and that evening she gives birth to a son. They're surrounded by goats and cows and donkeys and sheep and probably not goats, but you know, then there's dogs and puppies and cats and everything is there to Yeah, yeah, I think you get it. It's ridiculous. But the thing is th- there's more ridiculousness in that whole narrative than I think we, we really think about on a regular basis. And the and the the story we actually get is so much richer if we just let it speak for itself. So why don't you light your candle and sit down and we'll go over some of the actual history of Jesus' birth and try and weed out some of the misconceptions that we've imported through our, uh, well, self-centered focus and desire to politicize it in the ways that we like it. So, let's begin. Now, in those days, well, in what days, right? So, we'll just start out with Luke 2. In those days, well, what days, right? Well, in the days when, uh, as in chapter 1, Mary was with child, we have in chapter 1 her going to see Elizabeth and meeting with Elizabeth, where, who, who's already pregnant, miraculously, after being barren for most of her life, uh, pregnant with the, uh, the, the Baptist, John the Baptist. And you know, Mary goes to see her, and John leaps in his mother's womb for joy. And Mary sings a, a wondrous song that, that we have recorded as the Magnificat. And then John is born, his father Zacharias writes his name is John, and then he sings another song, the Benedictus. And so it is in those days that a decree comes down from Caesar Augustus, right? The, the first emperor of Rome, right? The, the, great, the great empire from which, well, frankly, all Western civilization has its roots, and it comes down from him, this first great emperor, the first r- single ruler of Rome since the, the early days of, of its, of its uh, ruling. And he says that he wants a census, right? Which will include a tax, but we know from other accounts within the scriptures, there are tax collectors already existing. So it's not like this tax was a one-time thing. This was just a special one. Um, and... So in order to do this, in order to get a, an idea of who is in his kingdom, right? Because this this man is, this man has control over a massive area, right? Basically the entire Mediterranean, and uh, then all the way, all the way up into Gaul, which is modern day France, right? All the way up into England. So the guy who's in charge of all of that says, "I want to know who's in my kingdom." Everybody, 
go and let's uh, let's keep account. Joseph, being a good Jew, is going to go to his father's house so that he can be counted with his family. Right? He is of the lineage of David, so he's going to go to his ancestral home and be counted there because that is his his home. So he goes with his with his wife Mary, who is pregnant, and they go together to the city of Bethlehem because he is of the house and lineage of David. Uh, and while they were there, the days are completed for her to give birth. So let's think. Does it say that it happened the night they arrived? No. Does it say that it didn't? Technically, no. But the implication of the verbiage is that while they were there, in other words, they got there. They were staying there. You know, the census took a while because people had to walk there from all over the place. The Jewish diaspora was immense. Um, I mean, just think about the the exiles that they had gone through. You would have had people who were spread out uh, across the the known world, and they had to be called together to to register together to be represented together. So you're waiting for these people and, you know, the Romans want to make sure they get a good count. And it's not like the modern day where you have everybody's address. So they're all gathered together in their ancestral home, right? Where is this home? This is the home of, of David. But, but that is the home of Jesse, which is the home of Obed, who is the son of Ruth and Boaz, right? So this would be the ancestral home of those people. And, and, and there's a connection here though, because not only is it the home, the place where, right, where this, this woman was, was redeemed because the last man of that household, right, who was related to her now dead husband, chose to, to redeem her, to take those lands so that they would not be lost by the family and chose to take her as his wife even though she was a foreigner, right? So it's not just those lands, though, because their great-grandson, David, wasn't just some shepherd. He was a shepherd, but he was the king. And from his line, the kings of Israel went. Even through all of the turmoil and chaos of, of, of Israel being invaded and conquered, his line remained. And here in this little house of bread, Bethlehem, they gathered together to be numbered by a foreign ruler so that he could know the, the totality of his dominion of the earth. And while they're gathered together in this, in this place, the time comes for God to enter the world fully, right? To, to be born, to be, to be revealed as one of us. Now, there were codes around giving birth and, and the context of these things. And part of the Levitical code has to do with the uncleanness after birth, right? This is, a, this is part of the ritual uh, uncleanness of people, which 
oftentimes revolves around things that are naturally unclean, uh, as though there's actually a good reason that God gave these good laws for a pre-industrial society, which we might be uh, intelligent to follow ourselves. Uh, not all of them, but obviously some of the stuff of, hey, maybe you shouldn't eat pork because it can get undercooked easily, so you better cook it if you're going to eat it. You know. Anyway, part of this was the uncleanness of a woman after she gave birth. So let's imagine the, the scenario here. We've got family and extended family and most extended family all living together, right? All spending time here in, well, what, what do we know? Verse, uh, verse 7 tells us that there was no room for them in the inn. So they must have been staying in the inn, right? Or it doesn't say they must have, but it would be a reasonable assumption to say that they were staying in the inn. And there were a lot of people staying there with them. And all those people who were all gathered together weren't very interested in becoming ritually unclean for for a week because Mary had to give birth. And keep in mind, right, Mary, Mary's a virgin. And 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 yet the they may have known that she got became with child at a very close moment to when she was betrothed to Joseph in almost a suspicious way as though the child's illegitimate, right? That had to be in the back of their heads. So not only is she going to make them unclean, but she's going to make them unclean because they think she is already done something wrong. They can't prove it. Otherwise, she'd probably be dead. But, you know, you know how people talk. So is she going to make everybody unclean? No, no, of course not. There's no space for her to, to give birth. So they'll send her out wherever the cattle live, right? Might They might... Not, there might not be any cattle there at the time, right? We don't know. Frankly, it's there's no animals actually referenced to being witness to the birth at all. Just people. So all those glorious hymns with talking about the cattle lowing and the sheep are there. and There is some good uh, sacrificial imagery there involved. Sure, sure. Um but why would we need the sacrificial animals to be there when the true sacrifice for the sins of the world is already present? Why would we need the sacrificial animals to be staying in the stall when they're not needed for this sacrifice? Because they are insufficient. They are totally insufficient. The one who's come into the world has, has made all of them obsolete. So she's there. And she gives birth in this, in wherever this is, outside of the inn where likely she and Joseph were staying because they were of the house and lineage of David. This would have been their family inn. She goes outside, she gives birth. Now, do we know anything about the weather either? Right? This is the other this is the other frustration, right? Oh, it was cold and of course it was windy and bleak and and it was quiet though. It was very quiet. It was eerily quiet. And then you know we don't, we don't know anything. Frankly, we don't know anything. We don't know if there was snow on the ground. Personally, I I I I doubt that there was snow on the ground in Israel. 
I don't know the climate of Israel in the the first century AD, but I doubt it. I, I will put it at that much. And th- there is nothing in the text that actually says it was there. So we might be better off if we ignore it. And we move on and we sing about the, the awesome things that are actually there, like God himself coming into our world. God becoming man. That, that in this one, there is peace between God and man. Such a, such a miracle takes place that, that even the angels of heaven cannot keep silent, but are forced to break out in song for the joy of what goes on giving praise and honor glory to God. Well, maybe that's maybe that's a better thing to sing about than about how cold and dark it was. I mean, seriously, we don't even know if Mary gave birth during the night. That's that's not that's not in the text. All we know is that the shepherds got there in the night. That's about it. So why don't we let that be? Now, obviously there's some good imagery going on there, right? That in the darkness of our world, in the darkness of our world as we have brought it upon ourselves through sin, a light has shined. For those who dwelt in darkness, a light has shined, right? The, 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 the son of righteousness has come with healing in his wings. There is a lot of good imagery there, yes. To, th- to sing about the the silence and the stillness of that night that is then broken by the joy of the angels. Yeah, there's a lot of good imagery. Don't get me wrong. And for poetic purposes, it's helpful. But it's not in the text. So let's be careful. Let's be cautious. And let's focus on what actually matters. All right. So what next? We get the angels, right? In, in the same region, right? Where? Around Bethlehem. There are shepherds. Now, why is this? Why is this beautiful again? Well, who's who are the shepherds in the Old Testament? We know a lot of them. Some some key ones, obviously David. But you could also reference Joseph. Joseph, who went out to to care for his his brothers, right? So technically, Judah was a shepherd. Um, Abraham was a shepherd. I mean. He had his own shepherds, right? He was a shepherd CEO, but he was a shepherd nonetheless. Abel was a shepherd. And Abel, Abel is the one who's really like, that's the big one, because he was a shepherd when you couldn't eat sheep. So what on earth was he doing as being a shepherd? Well, that's where, that's kind of one of those those clues in the uh, Genesis account, right? Why would you, Why would he be a shepherd if you can't eat sheep? Maybe that's telling you something about the need for sheep as a sacrificial animal even then, even even before the flood, even before Sinai, that there was that need. Speaking of Sinai, Moses. Moses was a shepherd as well. So is it any surprise that the Lord reveals this great mystery, the great wonder of what is happening to shepherds out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night? And how an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. 
And of course they were. I mean, let's just think. Uh, growing up in the middle of a, of a desert, there, was not, there were times where I could actually go outside and there were places I could go where it was very dark. And there were some nights where you could go outside and the moon was, was new and so you couldn't actually see the moon. And, and looking up, you could see how bright the stars appeared out in the, in the firmament of the heavens. You can just see all of the stars. And we don't know whether they could or not. We don't know if it was a cloudy day or not, or cloudy evening. But what we do know is it was nighttime. And their lights were probably very limited. They might have had some fire out there, but... Um, this is honestly probably a terrifying time of the year. Well, every time of the year is going to be terrifying for these guys. But, you know, these these guys, shepherds, have to beat back the bears and the cougars and the wolves, right? The, the bears and the lions and the wolves that David speaks of having beaten back. So there is textual evidence for those at least. And, and so these men are keeping track of a very important uh, animal, right? This is a sacrificial animal, not to mention probably a food animal, right? This is a Passover animal. You need sheep. This is a society that needs sheep. And these guys have to go out and they have to protect those sheep. Their lives are probably less valuable than the lives of the sheep, at least to whoever owns the flocks. So... These men are out there in the dark, trying to keep their eye, looking out for anything that moves that's not inside their sheep, right? I'm trying to keep an eye on all their sheep, make sure their sheep don't wander around, right? Because their sheep are always prone to wander because that's what sheep do. And, and suddenly, suddenly on this night of all nights, the glory of the Lord starts shining in their faces because an angel of the Lord appears to them, right? And, and you know, these, these angels of the Lord, they're not exactly, well, they're not exactly comforting even when they appear during the day, right? Everyone is terrified when these guys show up, right? They look at them and they, they fall on their faces, right? Gideon, Gideon tries to worship one of them, right? This is, this is not a, a nice sight even if you were ready for it. And, and this is showing up in the night right in these guys' faces. And so, they, of course, they're afraid. Of course, they're afraid. Why wouldn't they be afraid? But the angel says, do not be afraid. Well, thanks. You know, a little late for that, but okay. Why? Because I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. Right? And already right there, we've got, you know, the, the, the light into the Gentiles. Wonderful stuff. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Right? What, do we, what words do we have here? We have city of David, the city of the kings. Right? Minas Tirith. Or more accurately, Osgiliath. Or Anu Minor, if you're looking about the northern kingdom. But the city of the kings, the place where the kings came from. Of the house of the kings, there has come one who will save Israel, who is the Messiah. Now, at this point, who are these guys to doubt it? Who are these guys to say, well, no, you're wrong. It obviously can't be true. Well, first of all, they're angels. And second of all, 
this is exactly what had been promised. That of the, the house of David would come one who would save the kingdom, the people, the world. So why would they be surprised that it would be in this place that that one would come? Right? We actually get some of these threefold roles of Jesus, right? The prophet, the priest, and the king, all tied up into, into one neat little package and spoken out by the angel here to these, these shepherds. And he gives them the sign, right? The angel gives them the sign. You will find a child wrapped in clothes, cloths, lying in a manger. So we know the child is there in the manger because that's where Mary put him. And so we know that much. And then what do we hear? The multitude of the, the heavenly host praising God. Yes. And this one we do we do pretty well. I, I do wish we had more um, warrior-like angels or we or maybe we just portrayed the angels the same way we do when they're talking to Elijah, right? And they've got all the wings and the terrifying voices and, you know, maybe they've got flaming swords too. I, for one thing, it would be, be a little bit more interesting if we did that rather than our little idea of these tiny little creatures celebrating. If instead the, like, the universe rips a tear in itself and suddenly you see these, these, these beings are, appear to the shepherds that you know, the, the, the hosts of heaven, the rank on rank, the legions of angels, which, which Jesus speaks of, that are at his command, are there and they are singing for joy the host the armies of heaven are rejoicing because the king has come to conquer to take his throne back man and god are no longer going to be fighting this is this is such comfort right that satan through this child will be overthrown that the rebels will finally be finished off. And what do they sing? Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And and then when, the shepherds don't move until the angels have gone away from them. And I don't blame them. I mean, the, the chorus that that must have sounded like, the, the beauty of that music must have sounded in their ears the rest of their lives. I wish I, I look forward to when I actually get to, to hear something similar. I'm sure Bach's having a blast up there. But then, yeah, finally, right? They they you know this vision dissipates, and they say, "Let's go there and see this thing, which the Lord has made known to us." Right? Well, He told us, "Let's go check it out." What are they going to do? They have they have the flocks to take care of. So what do they do? They abandon the flocks. Right, they they abandoned this lesser thing to see the Messiah, to see, to glimpse the Christ Child. And they hurried there, and then, when they had seen it, they made it known. Right, so these guys, they're supposed to be out in the fields, they're supposed to be guarding the sheep, and yet they go, and they proclaim what they have heard and seen. What, what joy must fill their hearts in this moment when they see it and they say, this is true. What the angels have said is true. I mean, of course it's true because, I mean, what we've seen must come to pass. What the Lord has spoken must come to pass, but it has. And the confidence to know that, that 
the the time had finally come was uh, must have been must have been spectacular and all who heard it marveled of course they marveled i mean it's a, it's a marvelous word we too should, should marvel at this we do to do marvel at this and it's a glorious marveling and then they go back praising god glorifying god for all the things that he had revealed to them and what do we get next well next in the narrative we don't get the wise men frankly we don't because if the wise men had come at this point jesus would not be able to be presented in the temple because herod would have gotten straight to killing people so we know at the very least the wise men don't show up until eight days after eight days later odds are it's somewhere between somewhere within a year of this you know year to year and a half depending i mean if i were if i were herod i would add a few months probably nine months if i were herod i'd add 10 months to when the star appeared just in case it appeared at his conception you know just just hedge your bets but uh that's getting to the wise men right first first jesus has to be presented to the temple so he is presented and this one we actually get as far as I know, we, we, we don't have a lot of misconceptions around the presentation because we don't have a lot of Christmas hymns with terrible lyrics about the presentation of Jesus at the temple. In fact, we have some fantastic hymns, fantastic songs, fantastic canticles around this uh, moment, particularly the Nunc Dimittis. Lord, now you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Oh, what a beautiful song that this man gets to sing. We don't know how old Simeon is. All we know is that he's been waiting. Now, we, we can assume he was old because, well... We, we, I think we interpret that from the idea that he's been uh, looking forward to the consolation and, and also because it says he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. So, so we make the reasonable assumption that he has lived to a very, uh, very old age. And this also, I think, involves Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, who's also there because she is old. And so I think we make the connection. Um, but we don't know. Simeon could be 40 is it is reasonable to say he is older but he could be the bible doesn't exactly say so this happens right not a lot of misconceptions but maybe maybe simeon's younger doesn't not not exactly something we could say with confidence but we do know his words and we can hear his words and be blessed by his words the next event well isn't exactly clear because luke testifies that the after the law everything after everything had been done according to the law they returned to nazareth and matthew testifies that after he was born in bethlehem wise men from the east magi right this is this is like daniel was a magi he was a wizard right wizards from the east arrived and they they're looking for him and Herod consults the the uh, 
scribes and the chief priests and directs them to Bethlehem. And then a star guides them to wherever the child is. The, the thing is, we don't really know if the star guides them to Bethlehem or if the star guides them to Nazareth. However, the angel does tell Joseph to flee to Egypt until uh, the time that the angel returns to him because Herod is going to search for this the child. So it would be reasonable to say that they were still in Bethlehem and then fled from there. But that's not exactly clear. What we do know is they're in some sort of house and the Magi appear to them. And 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 that let us focus on, right? First, well, first that, and then what happens afterwards. So we'll come back to the Magi, right? What happens afterwards? They flee, right? They go down to Egypt. They spend time in Egypt, in exile, waiting for the land to be prepared for them to return so that God can carry out what he promised to carry out where he promised to carry it out. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So God has promised this, and it is fulfilled by sending Jesus safely to, to dwell in a foreign land for his protection, just as happened with Israel through Joseph and then coming out through Moses. So now back to the Magi, right? Who are the Magi again? The Magi, the, the wizards of ancient Babylon, the wise men, the ones who who would look at the heavens, who might, you know, maybe we have a couple of alchemists in here. I mean, they had some, they had some pretty rare and fine uh, things with them, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It takes a lot of money to get, a, well, gold, and frankincense and myrrh aren't that that uh, cheap either. Gold for the king, frankincense for the priest, and myrrh for embalming. It seems, it seems that these men were paying attention when Daniel spoke of the one who would come. When, when Daniel, in those, in those mysterious prophecies, in the, in the latter chapters of, the, of his book, he speaks of, of these, these, these mysteries that, that people have been trying to interpret of the, the weeks of years and, you know, trying to unravel how this has to do with the end of the world. Well, maybe, well, maybe it did have to do with the end of the world, but maybe it had to do with the, the death of Jesus because that is the end of the world. Because that is the reason that the angels celebrated. It was because the reign of the devil was over. The hosts of heaven could rejoice in the glory of God because God had come into our our flesh, had joined with us so that he could break the bondage that we had imposed upon ourselves. These men paid attention when the greatest of all the magi ever to have lived, the wisest man of Babylon, spoke concerning the future. He prophesied of one who was to come. And they listened. 
And when they saw the star, they knew what had come to pass. And they traveled, well, they traveled to the place where Daniel had come from, to Jerusalem, the great city. And there they traveled to wherever the child was at the time, whether it was Bethlehem or Nazareth. And there they paid him homage. And there they presented him with his destiny, with his right. And we don't know how many of them there were. There could have been two. There could have been two, right? We never think about that. We always think about more. There could have been two, right? All we know is there was more than one. <laughs> but we two kings doesn't really rhyme. Henry twenty kings doesn't either. We don't. We don't. We, we like the idea of the three because of the three gifts. But again, we don't know. And rather than focusing on those things, rather than singing about that part of it, perhaps we should focus on the gifts. Perhaps we should focus on why they went there, what they intended to testify by going there. They testified that the one of whom Daniel the prophet spoke had come into the world and that the nations knew and the nations had been waiting and the nations were ready for him to take his seat on the throne. And there are truly so many beautiful, wonderful hymns that testify to this glorious truth. Let me share one that I frankly hadn't heard before from Johann Riest. Break forth, O bounteous heavenly light, and usher in the morning. Ye shepherds, shrink not with affright, the day of grace is dawning. This child, though weak in infancy, our confidence and joy shall be. The power of Satan breaking, our peace with God now making. O dearest child whom I adore, whose grace surpasses measure, my brother whom I cherish more than earth with all its treasure, haste from thy manger to depart. O come and dwell within my heart, with joy will I receive thee, a cradle there will give thee. All blessing, thanks, and praise to thee, Lord Jesus Christ, be given. Thou hast my brother deigned to be, thou Lord of earth and heaven. Help me throughout this day of grace to praise thy love and seek thy face, and when I stand before thee, forever to adore thee. See, that's the real point of Christmas, isn't it? It's not about winter snow. And it's not about refugees looking for a home because they were cast out by all those around them. It's about the fact that ultimately we do not deserve to have a home. We do not deserve to, to have peace, to have comfort, to have even so much as a stable for our heads. And yet for us wicked people, Jesus Christ came born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might be saved through him. I hope that all of your meditations, all of your devotions, all of your evenings, all of your mornings may be enlightened by this true light that proceeds from the one through whom all light has come into this world. 
Have a blessed Advent and have a blessed, wonderful Christmas tide.